Hello, and welcome to episode two of the Unified Rules of Podcast. I'm Eric Hamidi. And I'm Edmund Kwan. In this podcast, we talk about past subject matters and events in the world of mixed martial arts, giving MMA fans our thoughts and how we experience them, as well as informing listeners who want to know more about MMA. In this episode, which was recorded on June 24th, 2020, we'll discuss Kevin Randleman's career and his inclusion in the UFC Hall of Fame class of 2020. Let's talk about Kevin Randleman then. Now, Kevin Randleman, which is funny because it's like GSP has this great, I, I know, I knew great, you were successful go into that. career. And yeah. looking at his record, you know what? Twenty. Let me pull it up. Twenty six and, and two. two. Yeah. And then Kevin Randleman, seventeen and sixteen. You yeah. Know? So I, I think an important thing about this podcast, and you know. Like I kind of alluded to earlier, if you have somebody who's never watched MMA or doesn't know anything about MMA, they look at these two guys. Kevin Randleman has a 17 and 16 record. And I'm sure most people, they're going to be all like, why is a guy with basically a 50-50 record getting into the Hall of Fame? That's what we're here for, to kind of give you some insight into that. Yeah, <laughs> which is, you know what, on the, on the subject of like if GSP was in today's environment, would he have been successful? And I probably feel like he wouldn't be as successful, but Kevin Randleman in today's environment, I feel like he'd be pretty successful, you know? I think I know such... why you're saying that because of his persona and his yes. like aura and the thing, like the type of like, you know, sort of vibe that he would exude or what have you. Yeah. I mean, he was just like, it was a show and and it's especially i think it comes from like what he had a pro wrestling background in japan too and then um i don't i don't know 100% about his like pro wrestling background like i don't even know if he actually competed in any matches i mean really? i know he had i know he had watched you know wwe programming either as a kid or with his own kids like i saw in an interview where he mentioned think, something like that. I think I just he don't... did some in Japan just because um, I, I know like when the MMA scene was getting started in Japan, they got a lot of their pro wrestlers to yeah, compete yeah. in that. Yeah, so like, which, you know, which I've become a little Ken bit Shamrock, more. Ken Shamrock, you know, Sakuraba, they all yeah. had like, they all um, had. I don't know if you know like a Minowa man. Minowa man? No, no, never mind. Never mind. I no, I'm for. I, I mean, uh, pro wrestling something that I'm not really into, just because. Right. I I feel like I have to catch up on like, thirty years of storylines. Right. I mean, like, I I was just saying that Minowa man is a Ikuhisa Minowa is his real name. He's another very famous <laughs> MMA fighter slash pro wrestler. I I th I thought you would know about him, but it's all good. No, I mean. Unfortunately, I don't. I, the the Japanese pro wrestling scene just seems more insane than the American one. Uh, in some <laughs> ways, yeah, kind of. I mean, it, it just it, looks it so is... much more crazy and fun than right. like well, the American can, scene to me. Well, I, I I can tell you this about I can tell you this about the Japanese pro wrestling scene, and you know, we don't. I'm not going to get too involved in that, but yeah. it is definitely. Yeah it is definitely a more physical style than uh -huh. what North American fans are used to seeing. And they treat pro wrestling in Japan as a legitimate athletic contest or a sport or, 
you know, whatever, whatever verbiage you want to use. So it mm-hmm. is taken a lot more seriously back in, over there. It, it's know. crazy um, how I feel like their MMA scene has died down a lot compared to, you know, back in the heyday of pride and all that. I know they try to bring it back with um, crap. I'm forgetting dream. Oh yeah. 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 Like basically dream was my, okay. So from my understanding of it, dream was basically some of the people who ran pride yeah. teaming up with the guys from FEG that ran K1, K1 heroes. Right. Yeah. K1 and K1 heroes was the MMA organization of that umbrella. And basically they combined together to create dream. And honestly, in my opinion, I feel like maybe that was something that kind of led to the demise of dream or kind of hindered dream was that they tried too much to be like pride. Well, I mean, I I, I feel like they tried, but they didn't have the roster to back it up. Right. Because like the only name I remember, the only big name was like Shinya Aoki, you know? Yeah. See, just because he was he was doing all that crazy rubber guard stuff and submitting, and he also had right. like the that was a time when he was wearing like the the long pants. Sometimes they were oh like yeah rainbow the, the rainbow stats. Oh yeah. yeah, I remember. I want to get those. <laughs> See, the interesting thing is that like Shinya Aoki, he did fight in Pride, but he didn't really become a big name until he went to Dream. Like he he wasn't like that big of a name in Pride. And like he started up when Pride was on its like last legs, and yeah. then he really raised to fame in Dream, and he became like one of their top stars. Well, I think like there wasn't any other big names for him to like compete with by that Who, time. Shinya? Yeah. Well, I remember towards. I mean, the end. well, okay, here's the yeah. thing. Here's the thing, because I watched a lot of Dream once I got HDNet, which is now Access uh-huh. TV. Here's right. a little bit of here's a little bit of knowledge for anyone about MMA, or here's a little bit of a history lesson right here. So Dream had a TV deal with the US and like right. they were airing a lot of their events on HDNet's Access TV. And one of the fights that was like they were really building up towards towards the end of 2009 into 2010 was Shinya Yoki and uh, Tatsuya Kawajiri. I think like those were like the big, you know, rivals of that division. And that was like a big name for him to fight. Also, Joachim Hansen was like a big name just because like in 2008, Joachim had beat Shinya to win the lightweight Grand Prix and the lightweight title. And then when they fought again towards the end of 2009, it was their third matchup because they fought once in Pride, once in Dream, and that was the rubber match. So... Mm-hmm. They had some, I think they had some matchups for him. Also, Eddie Alvarez, uh, those two fought. That's that's how he got really big. Yeah, yeah. I mean, in Dream first. What's up? I remember seeing him like in the Dream fights first. Yeah, yeah. Because he he fought there. His first fight there was in 2008. And this was like a year before Bellator even came around. Yeah. So, I, I mean, I'm not trying to like invalidate your whole claim, but I feel like they did have some names for Shinya Aoki to go up against. It's just like, you know, if you're trying to be like pride, there's only so much success you can have with that. And it's like, you're just trying to be like pride. You're not pride. And it's like, there's always going to be that comparison or that expectation that you can't live to because it's like, you're not the actual pride organization. You're just trying to emulate it or copy it or something. Maybe, and I don't know, maybe that's what hurt dream in the end. Maybe that's what led to their downfall, but also, another thing is that back in 2011, when Japan had all those earthquakes and tsunamis, I would imagine 
MMA was the last thing on people's minds. So Japanese MMA took a big took a big hit that year. I mean, when you have all that going on, how much money how much money could they generate? How many people could possibly go to their shows? Man, that's a that's a bad chunk of time, I guess, for Japan. Yeah, because like what the economic crisis across the whole world in two thousand eight. Yeah. Plus that tsunami. Yeah. Yeah, just twenty eleven was a rough year for for Japan. That was the same year that Sengoku went out of business. What happened with them was that their primary sponsor pulled all funding for the organization and they just ran out of money and they had to close up. And then after that a lot of their fighters went to the UFC. Dream continued throughout the year and they had one more show in 2012 on New Year's Eve, but then that was it. Dang. But 2020 is off to a great start. I know, man. It's going to be interesting seeing how MMA looks like after all this, man. I hope you realize I'm being sarcastic. Oh, yeah. No, of course. Okay. I mean, you have Dana White starting like Mortal Kombat now. and <laughs> You know, it's interesting that you say that because I, I feel like even that could be an episode in and of itself. But... I I just feel that we're sidetracking a little bit. Oh, yeah, definitely. On, Let's get know, back on topic. I don't know where we left off, but just to give an overview, this was a guy who was a two-time NCAA champion. He started MMA in 1996, and he's a former UFC heavyweight champion. Well, I just remember, I mean, for sure, I remember him as the dude who slammed Fedor yes. on his head. Yes, that is one of the things that he will be most remembered for is that slam of Fedor Emelianenko. So he fought Fedor in the second round of the 2004 Pride Heavyweight Grand Prix. And also, just a real quick side note, that was also the same night that Quinton Jackson delivered that powerbomb KO on Ricardo Arona. Oh yeah. my God. Yeah, the same night. On the same night, that's crazy. It, it, it's crazy, and I've brought this up to you in the past. I don't know why that isn't talked about more. The fact that you have two of the greatest slams in the history of MMA literally happen on the same night and no one talks about that or it doesn't it doesn't get mentioned enough or it's just like geez man like the same night I, I don't know. And, and this you know, is a grand prix. So like a grand yeah. prix is basically you got eight people in a tournament. Actually, there were 16 people in that tournament. But it's basically like a tournament, and you're just yeah. going fight after fight after fight until yeah. someone so wins this, it all. So when, so when Kevin and Fedor fought each other, this was in the second round. That's so crazy. Yeah. Could you imagine people doing that today? I know Bellator has their Grand Prix, but that's like fight after... It's like it's spread out over a series of fights. Well... Pride kind of spread it out over a series of time, except for the last two rounds, because you had the first round in April of 2004, the second round in June, and then the semifinals and the finals on the same night in August. Really? I, I, thought, I thought they did all the fights in one night. Pride was actually pretty good about spreading out the tournaments. They never had more than two rounds on the same night, except for the 2000 Grand Prix, which was their first ever one where they had three rounds on the same night those fights. fights back then were crazy man 10 minute round could you imagine yeah. Dude, a 10 yeah. minute round anyway so kevin he he fights fedor in the second round of the grand prix 
And for anyone who's curious or who wants to check this out, look this up. Kevin literally grabs Fedor by the waist, lifts him up into the air, and then just drops him right on his head. He, he slams Fedor right where the, the neck connects to, to the upper back or the, the, the torso, whatever. And somehow, Fedor is still able to win that fight. He's, oh, he just shakes he, it off. I know, right? And it's like, for me, when I watch that fight, I think, how the hell did Fedor's neck not just snap, not just break, yeah. you know? And for me, honestly, I, I thought about this recently. I believe that in a different universe, Kevin Randleman will would have beaten Crow Cop and Fedor to advance to the semifinals in that tournament. I don't know if he would have won the whole thing, but if he just won both those fights against Crow Cop and Fedor, like she would be a legend, dude. Especially I mean, like winning is, in the fashion bit, that he did. I feel like throwing someone like Fedor in that fashion makes you legendary i mean you gotta remember fedor's got that judo background he's got that sambo background and i also think he's got that wrestling it's like fedor he, he is like a tough he definitely grappler, has a sambo you know? he definitely yeah. has a sambo background and i i always kind of felt like maybe kevin randleman he or not sorry not kevin randleman i always felt like fedor kind of struggled against wrestlers maybe because kevin randleman was able to take him down I think Mark Coleman was able to take him down, who was uh, Kevin Randleman's trainer or head yeah. coach. Who else had a really good wrestling background that fought him? Just Well, just with those two, I feel like, you know, maybe Fedor struggled a little bit with, like, really strong wrestlers. Hmm. But, you That's know. That's interesting. Just because it, I always saw him as, like, such a strong grappler. Yeah. I mean, he was. Know? He was. Yeah. And... I guess, especially back in those days, it was always, it was the judo versus wrestling or the jujitsu versus wrestling, mm -hmm. you know, well, it was grappling it, shows. fighters weren't fighters weren't as well-rounded back then as they are now. So mm -hmm. for instance, like Kevin Randleman and just generally speaking, his whole hammer house team, which was the training camp that Kevin Randleman fought in. I mean, they had a lot of high caliber wrestlers there, but I don't know how well they sort of, I don't know how well they adapted the other facets of their game, like submissions or like being on their back was always like a weak point for them a lot. And it, I, I don't know if you, I don't know if you're seeing Kevin Randleman's record, but like, didn't he lose a lot of his fights by submission? I, I need to pull it up. I yeah, mean, it I, wouldn't surprise me, especially considering back in those days, the only people who really knew how to do any submissions were like, the jujitsu guys and well, I would guys. say I would say that also Frank Shamrock. He really, uh, he really well, knew how to fight off his back, and he did that very well against Tito Ortiz back in uh, 1999. Yeah, well, he had he was in Japan, you know, for a long time doing pro wrestling, and I'm mm -hmm. sure he picked up a lot of judo and jujitsu for that. You know, oh yeah, for sure, for sure. But I think the whole Hammer House team is just like that was like one thing that it seemed like they could never really like get very good at is their submission game. It's just like, you know, being able to like fend off submissions, fight off their back and stuff. And I guess it, you know, it makes sense just given the backgrounds of Mark Coleman and Kevin Randleman, who were the founders or like basically the head guys behind that team. Mm -hmm. But 
I don't know if you know this, but I found out something interesting about his fight with Fedor Emelianenko, uh, Kevin Randleman. So that happened on Father's Day, which I find a little interesting because, you know, Father's Day had just, has, you know, just occurred, it, you know, right. was very recently. But in the our reason, world, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. In our world? You mean like 2020? Yeah. Okay, yeah, yeah. So it, it, Father's Day just happened and he fought Fedor on Father's Day and his father had recently passed away when he fought Fedor Emelianenko. Jeez. Yeah, there's there's like basically a 27 minute long video on YouTube where it does oh like backstage gosh. interviews with Fedor and Kevin Randleman and he even like talks about it. And if you look at the end of the promo video that the UFC has for Kevin Randleman going into the Hall of Fame, it has a little bit of those sound bites from the end of that video where like Kevin's saying like you know, just remember the good times we had with people or something along those lines you know we're all invincible or indestructible as long as we keep it up here and he points at his head and at his heart so his dad had recently passed away and like part of me can't i mean one thing that i need to point out about kevin randleman and i think this is a very important thing to find to i think this is a very important thing to point out kevin randleman was he he was very sportsmanlike. He was he conducted himself in a very sportsmanlike manner. He never made excuses for his losses. He never he never protested a loss or just never like came up with all these reasons for why he 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 lost a fight. It's part of the reason why he sort of had yeah. an umbrage with Tito Ortiz was because Tito constantly made excuses for his losses. And yeah, I think he's like he was a showman, but he was also like humbled and respectful. Yeah, like, most like of the time. for instance, when he when Kevin lost that fight to Fedor Emelianenko, he hoisted him up. He like lifted him up, you know, on his shoulders, or he tried to. I think it was it, he couldn't quite get him up. He's on a the big shoulders. dude, man. I yeah, mean, yeah, yeah. Shit. So and and when he fought Randy Couture in 2000, he actually put the belt on Randy. Mm -hmm. um, in the post fight interview, he was just basically saying like, "Okay, I lost to Fedor because he was the better fighter tonight," like something along those lines. So basically the point I'm getting at or what I'm trying to ask is I wonder how much of the passing of his father was on his mind for that fight. How much did that sort of distract him from training? How much did that affect his performance? I mean, I know Kevin wouldn't and didn't make excuses or he didn't use that like as a reason for why he lost, but I just can't help but wonder, is that a reason why he wasn't able to like finish the job against Fedor? I don't know, man. That's that's getting pretty deep. <laughs> yeah, I mean, like it's it's funny that you say it, it's pretty it's... deep because, like, for me, like I actually feel a little like, I guess, emotional for lack of a better term when I bring it up because it's like he was so close to like success, and it's like if he just had a clear mind, would that have made a difference? It's really hard to say, just because Fedor was so dominant mm -hmm. during mm -hmm. that time, like he was superman you know he was invincible yeah. yeah but i mean like that's why i kind of like i mentioned it earlier in this uh in this episode in an alternate universe you know maybe if kevin randleman's father didn't pass away leading up to that fedor fight we would have lived we would be in a world where he beat crow cop and fedor 
in one tournament. <laughs> Shit. Dude, that would make a that's like some comic book stuff the multiverse of mma you know right right i mean well because when you think about it when he beat crow cop that was a big deal too yeah you know in case just in case anyone's listening is not familiar mirko crow cop he which by the way crow cop is one of the coolest nicknames in mma <laughs> period so he, uh, his real name is Filipovich or Filipovic. I don't know exactly the pronunciation. I don't know. Filip, Filipovich, something like that. But anyway, Mirko Krokop, he was, he had recently debuted in MMA and he only lost one fight against Minotaro Noguera, which is also a very good nickname in the MMA industry. Minotaro. He lost one fight against Minotaro Noguera and he was like this uh, world-class kickboxer. Going into that first round fight against Kevin Randleman, he was a huge underdog and everyone thought Mirko would win and advance to the next round. But then, as it turns out, Kevin hits him with a left hook, Mirko goes down, Kevin lands a few more shots on him, and then he knocks him out. He, he actually knocked out Mirko, which leads to that legendary call from Mauro Ronaldo, who's one of the top combat sports commentators ever. He's just, he goes, Kevin Randleman has knocked out Mirko Krokop. And dude, it, it's such dramatic music. You know the music that they played in Pride when the fight was done? Yeah. Yeah. So you combine the upset KO with Mauro Ronaldo's call and that music, and it's just epic as hell. I, I mean, <laughs> for me, I, I'm, I'm going to go on my computer just to see that. And another fun fact is that there's a piece of audio in the Hall of Fame promo that the UFC made for Kevin Randleman, where he's, he's thanking the Japanese crowd, and he says... For you, you and you, I'll go to hell and heaven and back. That's that's from that fight. Dude. So those are the two things that he'll be most remembered for. Is that slam of Fedor, which is one of the greatest slams in MMA history, if not the greatest. And he knocked out Krokop. And I, I would also say that his fight with Boss Rutin will be something that he's remembered for maybe not as much as those first two things, but I feel that's another thing that stands out. And also from that fight, Kevin and boss became great friends in an interview. He said, Kevin said that he was grateful for that fight because it made him and Rutin friends and they were really close. They had really good things to say about each other. Just generally speaking. And I think this is another important thing to talk about is that, Kevin was a was a very well liked guy. Oh yeah, and he was like very he, well liked. Didn't he do like charity work? A lot of charity work after. Yeah, there there was this there was this show called Inside MMA that aired on Access TV, and one time they made a video talking about Kevin Randleman, highlighting his career and such. And then at the end of it, they talked about him coaching wrestling and working with anti bullying groups. If you look up on YouTube. Inside MMA, Kevin Randleman. It's part of a Where Are They Now feature, and it'll explain it better than I can. For me, going into this podcast and researching all this stuff, I haven't heard anyone say anything bad about Kevin. Like, yeah, me neither. You know, like everything's been positive, you know. Mm -hmm. I mean, I talked to someone I, I knew who, like, uh, 
apparently he went to like the pride events when they were oh, still in Japan. Really? And yeah, he told me like, yeah, like he went to the pride events. They were amazing. But he also like, he got to talk with Kevin Randleman a bit and yeah, he was like just a super chill guy. Oh, damn, and man. it's unfortunate. Like he had to die from, from pneumonia. Yeah, yeah. I I heard it was like staph infection. No, no. I mean, complications on top of that. Well, he did have staph infection, but when he died in 2016, it wasn't due to, it wasn't due to that. Oh, okay. And, you know, we, either we, way, it was just a bad way to go. You know, yeah, for someone yeah. who's who who had a he had a good career. I mean, you know, his name was out there. Probably not yeah. the best record, but honestly, I, I feel like he was doing what he liked. Well, the reason why he's going into the Hall of Fame is because he was a big name in the early days of MMA. And you could say that he was part of that first group of well-known or mainstream names in MMA. I mean, I know mainstream is a strong word for the 90s MMA scene, but, you know... <laughs> Regardless, he was a well-known name, and there were a lot of people who were fans of his. Prior to the 2000s, when his record took a little bit of a dip, he was a very successful guy. As I mentioned earlier, he's, he was a former UFC heavyweight champion and has a lot of good wins over some big names back then. And a little bit of a fun fact about Kevin Randleman is that his teammate, his coach at Hammer House was Mark Coleman. And there were a lot of instances where Mark Coleman lost to guys like Maury Smith, Pete Williams, Pedro Hizzo, and then basically Kevin Randleman, he would fight those guys sometime after, and he would actually win. And I don't know if it was necessarily like, oh, he, you know, avenged his, you know, coach's loss or whatever, but it's just kind of funny that Kevin Randleman, he like did that for Mark Coleman or just like was able to do that. It's like, hey, they beat my head coach, so... I don't know if it added extra fuel, but he ended up, Kevin Randleman ended up winning against Maury Smith. He beat Pete Williams. He beat Pedro Hizzo. And actually, just generally speaking, Mark Coleman and Kevin Randleman, they fought a lot of the same opponents. They both fought Krokop. They both fought Fedor. They both fought Shogun, all those people. It's like the finisher or the revenger, <laughs> the avenger. Yeah, the avenger. Yeah. <laughs> Basically, he would avenge Mark Coleman's losses. And we're talking about people having very nice things to say about Kevin Randleman. And that was another guy. I think Mark Coleman, he like was actually in tears when he found out that Kevin Randleman was going into the Hall of Fame. Oh, um, uh, yeah. Yeah, I saw, I, the, mean, uh, I saw the videos. Right. But or I mean, they, it would make the, sense. When they inaugurated him. Yeah, yeah. It makes sense because, you know, they were very close and they, they knew each other from a young age. Like Kevin was... I don't know, he might have been in like high school when he first met Mark Coleman. I, I don't know. It's something like that. I, I, I'm not sure myself. Right, right. I mean, it's just, he's, you know. Here's, he's one of those guys, like he joined the sport when it, it was in its infancy, you know. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And it, it's like, for me, it's like, there's just not much to, it's hard to dig up a lot of info on guys on the in the beginning yeah well just because like internet was still in its infancy we didn't have all this like media hype behind it so it's like yeah well we didn't and have like five different you know documentaries being shot at the same time yeah i mean that's some that's one of the reasons why i find kevin randleman fascinating is because he fought 
during a time where MMA was not popular. You yeah. look at, if you look at fights from the UFC, or if you look at UFC fights from the 90s, you're not going to see any sponsor labels on the mat. It's just the UFC logo in the center, maybe like a red line, you know, in the shape of an octagon going around it. But that's it. There's no... Yeah. You know, it, it was a very... It was the wild, wild west, you know. Yeah. Or, it was or like, some, do you wear shoes? Do you not? Can you oh, wear yeah. Gloves? That was before That not? was before they finalized on the unified rules. I almost said the yeah. name of our podcast just now. Oh. <laughs> yeah. It, it, it was like... It was just kind of like... He was like that mythical figure who threw Fedor to me, you know? Yeah. I mean, that, like... That was, that was that was what I remember just because it was like, you know, you didn't have much info on these guys. So it's like, yeah, it, it, it almost became like, hey, did you hear this crazy shit that Kevin Randall yeah. did or whatever? It, yeah, I, that's I, that's what it felt like to me growing up watching it. And then it's like, oh, shit, you mean that crazy dude who threw Fedor in his head is like, yeah. I mean, for me, I feel like what's what made Kevin a fascinating like figure in MMA was that he was just this juggernaut with, you know, who fought in the early days of MMA. He would wear shoes when he could. And it just I don't know, even like his name kind of has a nice ring to it. I don't I can't really yeah. explain it. Like Kevin Randleman. I mean, I it rolls off the tongue quite well. You yeah, know? exactly. Exactly. You know, and it, it, I, I don't know. I'm for me personally, I'm kind of fascinated by the early days of MMA just because I guess it's not talked about as much or you don't really see a whole lot of footage on it. So it's kind of interesting seeing like the beginnings and like sort of like the small arenas and the dimly lit places that the UFC right. would have to run shows out of back in the day. I, I think the thing for me is like the training was just so you didn't have like news crews following you. You didn't have like a media team following you. You didn't have people with like cell phone cameras taking mm -hmm. video. And stuff. So it's like all the training that they did was just, you know, I guess I, I, I kind of like that old school training stuff, you know, mm -hmm. Probably just because like from watching all is these Is it because movies. there's like, is it because like there's less distractions or? No, no. It's like, I feel like today's training, if you wanted to find out how someone, a, a pro fighter trained, you can find it online, you know? Mm -hmm. And it's all very like, everybody trains very smart, I want to mm -hmm. say. Like, mm -hmm. it's all based back by science. Yeah. Which is great. You know, you, you can get better performance and all that. But it's always like just intriguing how like the crazy stuff people would do back in the day. Mm -hmm. just watching rocky movies seeing him like swallow eggs and like <laughs> try to chase a chicken you know <laughs> i i know people who i trained with in college and they, they chase after do, chickens or they would try to do dumb stuff like that you know or um <laughs> let me think you know uh, you know that if there was a if there was like an mma fighter or someone in the ufc who was training by trying to catch a chicken you know that would be like up on twitter or instagram oh, yeah. or, or, YouTube, or what like... uh khabib khabib was there's childhood <laughs> footage of him wrestling a goddamn bear you <laughs> like, know dude those... stuff like that is like dude. you know it's not the smartest but it's there's like that aura of like oh my god i'm doing some yeah, crazy I mean, batshit stuff to get yeah, stronger it, it, it's a different like mentality and it was kind of more of like a tough man or yeah. you know very like brawn-esque training methods as opposed to brain but i mean yeah 
obviously it you know whatever type of training Habib did and I'm not just talking about like the whole bear thing just like his entire training or like the kinds of stuff that like his father would do or that he does at aka at his camp it works for him because he's a he's a beast yeah Khabib wrestling a bear I mean that's just that's just that kind of like crazy badass thing that like you know people see it, it, it might not be the smartest thing to do or the most efficient way to train but just seeing someone do that just like I feel like as like guys it, it, it kind of like it's just that testosterone a bit, you know? Yeah. And like, also another thing we have to consider is that Habib comes from a, like an entirely different part of the world with different sort of, you know, mannerisms or approaches methods and all that stuff. And plus from what I've been hearing, like the Dagestani people, they're very, very tough and very rugged and, you know, they don't mess around there from, from what I've been hearing. <laughs> but like in regards to random, it, it's like, you know, I, I always wondered, I was like, how do I get so strong where I can throw the invincible Fedor Emilie Nickel on his head? I don't know. And we I never mean, know because they, they never really filmed his training or I haven't seen any videos of like extensive videos of their training camp. I can't really say that I've seen it either. You, you bring up a good point. Yeah. And like, I guess like, I remember like the most training I've seen from someone during that era was like, I think they shot a documentary mm -hmm. on uh, Hicks and Gracie. Oh yeah. Wasn't it called choke? Yeah, yeah. 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 Okay. And then like his training basically consisted of chilling on the beach, doing meditation <laughs> and then just like rolling with like people in his school. But like his thing was like, Hey, I'm just going to call it a submission. And that's the only submission I'm going to go for during our whole role which is like mm -hmm. still pretty insane. Yeah, Hickson, he was very skilled as well and he was he was very good at his craft. Oh yeah. I I feel like Randleman came in at a time where everybody was just like a Greek god, you know. Everything was like legendary. Mm -hmm. Every fight was just like another Greek legend. Well, yeah, when you think about the 90s MMA scene, the internet was just in its infancy. There was no YouTube or social media back then. Even to watch the UFC was so difficult because it just wasn't available on cable. The only way you were able to watch fights back then were either DirecTV, satellite, or tape trading. And that's how a lot of these fans would watch the fights is that they would trade tapes with people. I don't know that's how many. Crazy. I don't a VHS tape. Yeah, a VHS tape that basically. you had to record. That's crazy. Yeah, yeah, a VHS tape, and and people would trade it among themselves to watch these fights. Another fun fact is that this was a time that was affectionately known as the Dark Ages. Oh yeah, I mean, you didn't know who was who. I I think there was like a this guy was a total fraud. I forgot his name, but he just hyped up his record. Mm-hmm a lot and it's like back in those days it's like i mean there's no videos of anything i mean if someone said he had like a five and oh record mm -hmm. at some small promotion it's like it it could be true it could be fake but you don't know because like you didn't have anything to base it on you know mma wasn't an organized sport yet mm -hmm. and like every the rules were different from organization to organization and no one had video of anything you know so mm -hmm. yeah crazy. i mean art davy put it well in the 20 year anniversary documentary that the 
UFC made. It was called Fighting for a Generation. And basically what he was saying was they would take people at their word for what their record was, and then they'll prove it when they fight. Oh, yeah. 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 I mean... And, yeah, it's crazy, what? like, how, how, how different the world is with YouTube mm -hmm. and just the internet and the ability mm -hmm. to, like, share videos everywhere. Yeah, it's definitely a lot easier to watch content now. Just generally speaking, if if you wanted to watch the fights, you had to put in the work if you were a real MMA fan back then. Yeah. You know? Yeah, and just to go back even further, so my dad growing up, he was he was a big boxing fan and he was a big Muhammad Ali fan. And there were some occasions where because of the time zone differences, in order to watch his fights, he would have to get up at three or four o'clock in the morning to to watch it jeez and furthermore this was at a time where there was one tv in the entire house so and it was downstairs and it was in the living room so my dad would have to get up in the middle of the night and go down the stairs without waking up uh, my grandparents so that he could watch the fight that was dedication so yeah and it's it's a lot it's, it's crazy but that's how much of a fan he was of his. Yeah, man. Like nowadays, if I miss a fight, I just wait a couple of days and then just find <laughs> it online somewhere. Yeah, for sure. For sure. That's insane. Like, I can't even imagine back then I if mean, you missed a fight, you wouldn't you missed... be able to see it until like, ever. Could... I mean, yeah. And this was also at a time where taping it wasn't an option either. The point is, is that it was a lot harder to watch stuff back then. Yeah. 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 But, you know, to bring this episode full circle, Kevin Randleman, sure, he doesn't have the, he may not have the best record, but I think a lot of that was towards the tail end of his career when, when MMA fighters started getting more skilled and well-rounded. But he's definitely an important figure in MMA, and he definitely has a huge fan following. Aside from all that, he was a very nice person and, you know, a lot of people loved interacting with him. And, you know, I think it's, I think it's kind of cool that a guy like Kevin Randleman, despite his 17-16 record, gets in the Hall of Fame. Because, honestly, I don't think a lot of fighters with that type of a 50-50 record would be Hall of Fame worthy. Oh, yeah. I mean, I agree. And to add to that, it's like his accomplishments were just so iconic. That you can't deny, you yeah. can't that you can't deny his status as a Hall of Famer. Yeah, I mean, like I said, like every fight back in those days seemed like another legend in like the whole myth of mm -hmm. MMA. Like everybody was like a Greek god with their own adventures. So it's like, yeah, mm -hmm. definitely, he got in at a time where it's like you know everything was just so unknown, and he made yeah he made iconic accomplishments. So yeah, he definitely deserves to be in there. When you think about other fighters with double digit losses or whatever, and like in that legend legendary status, I mean, the only people that I can really think of who'd be in that category is like Sakuraba, BJ Penn, Randy yeah. Couture, Mark Coleman, Noguera, Krokop. Well, everybody back then, but I don't, it, it's like, um, I feel like some of those guys transitioned a little better into, I want to say the more, the next era of MMA, which is like basically the GSP era, where it was like yeah. more about 
the legitimacy of everybody's records and their accomplishments. I mean, just just you know? out of curiosity, who would you like include in that list? Because I'm I'm that's that's an interesting uh, point that you bring up. Uh, in the list of like basically fighters who transition better in that era where the records were more important or like those more there were more um, well-rounded fighters. I want to say you know Chuck Liddell. Okay. Okay. You he know was what? one of those, you know, back then. Mm-hmm. It was like, oh, dude, this crazy dude with a mohawk would just knock you out to like, oh, dang, like Chuck Liddell, look at his record, look at his stats, you know. I- I'll include like Randy legitimate- Couture in that list. Yeah, Randy Couture, I'll include too. Randy Couture because he, like, let me, let me just put it to you, to everybody this way. Randy Couture fought until he was 40, oh, dude, seven years so old. old. And, and he that was still is, a contender. Yes, that is the exception rather than the norm. And yeah. you know, he stuck in it for as long as he did, and he was still good at it. So I think he adopted to that new breed of fighter pretty well, or like adopted to that era pretty well. Yeah. So that, that's mean, somebody that I would include in there. Yeah, definitely. So, I mean, I, I don't, I don't know what else to say. <laughs> yeah, other than. I guess if we answer the question, does GSP deserve to be in the Hall of Fame? Absolutely. Does Kevin Randleman deserve to be in the Hall of Fame? Yeah. Dare I say, absolutely. Yeah. Thank you for listening to the Unified Rules of Podcast. If you liked our show, please share it with others. And if you want to learn more about us, you can check us out on Instagram, Twitter, or email us at unifiedrulespodcast at gmail.com. This episode is available on SoundCloud and Spotify. Next time, we'll discuss the background of and circumstances surrounding the UFC's first Fight Island event.